Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hello, this is Gotti Kaufman, Managing Director and CEO of RCLCO. If you're listening to our podcast, then you probably know that since 1967, RCLCO has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development worldwide. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I'm talking to Mike Neal, President and CEO of HG Fenton Company. Mike is responsible for guiding Fenton to achieving its vision and strategic plan objectives. Mike joined Fenton in 1988 and is considered the chief architect of the company's evolution into a real estate company and its growth over the years. Under his direction, the privately held organization has become one of the largest real estate owners and developers in San Diego County. Mike is a graduate of San Diego State University and is incredibly active in real estate space, serving on as many as 12 different boards and organizations. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to be a part of our podcast series. Oh, it's my pleasure, Gotti. Thank you for having me. You betcha. Well, Mike, I can't help but reflect on the first time I met you, which was going on 20 years ago now, when we begin uh, working together on uh, Fenton's strategic planning. I know that uh, over the years, we have developed both a friendship and a business relationship. And it's been a pleasure for me to be advising you and your organization. As I said many times to you before, you are often one of the folks that I refer to as an example for a thoughtful CEO and one that is among the best in thinking and implementing strategies for their companies. Many companies think about strategic planning, even conduct strategic planning efforts, but don't necessarily take the time and, and stay focused on implementation. You are, in my book, the poster child, Mike, for strategic focus and, and implementation in a series of three to five year uh, strategy efforts. So, Mike, uh, maybe leading to where we are today and where you're headed in the future might be useful for the audience to learn a bit more about your background. Can you give us a little bit of a description about your professional history coming out of college? Yeah, sure. So I'll kind of go back before that. I had the uh, privilege, as it turns out, to grow up in a construction family. My father, my grandfather, my uncle. In fact, I distinctly remember in high school, my father coming home and saying, if you ever go in this business, I'll have your head. And like every good teenager, I did just the opposite, right? Best thing I ever did. So during college, I uh, thought I wanted to be uh, an engineer, really kind of figured out pretty early on that the finance side is where I gravitated. I had the fortune of working through college and and mostly on construction sites. And the uh, fascination with building things just really took root. So that combination is is what got me into the business. I, I happened to go to work for my father right out of college. And not too long after that, ended up at the HG Fenton Company. While I was working for the contractor, I was actually also running pro formas for a guy named Ed Levine at Santa Fe Southern Pacific Realty because we shared an office. And so I kind of had the best of both worlds, running numbers and building things. It's a great combination. In addition to very strongly analytical mind, it's a great combination for great success. So... Over the last 10 or 20 years, how has your career changed and how have you evolved as a, as a CEO, given what's happening to the company and what's happening outside? Early in my career, of course, because I like to run numbers and build things, I really thought this business was just about building things. And you know, 20 years ago, it was about planning a project and building a project. But what really evolved is, is two things. One, recognizing that you can only get somewhere if you know where you want to go, kind of that begin and the end in mind thing, Covey's thing. 
and having a roadmap, having a guideline to get there. I'll never forget this. I was at an NAIOP uh, convention, and I picked up this little green book. And for an ADD guy like me, uh, thin books are a wonderful sight when you see them. And it was this uh, book called Strategy for Real Estate Companies. You might know the guy that uh, you might have helped write this, uh, Christopher Leinberger, who, as you know, we met with originally. And that book became the opportunity for our company to look at what we were doing from a strategic perspective rather than an execution perspective. And I was hooked. I I just really enjoyed the idea of having a strategy, putting that strategy together and the way your group lays things out where it's an industry role. What what, what, of all the things you can do, what are you, how do you grow where and how do you grow and what kind of capital do you need? Do you have the organizational resources to support that and the systems and resources to go with it? Uh, it's a it's a simple way to package things, but it's really powerful. And, and we started utilizing that right away. And we took a company that was just kind of doing things because we owned land to a company that purposefully converted that the land we had. And at that time, it was 6,000 6, acres of land in San Diego into an income portfolio that today is four and a half million feet of industrial and office buildings and 4,000 apartment units, all with our capital, no outside partners and not very much debt. So over that 20-year period that you asked about, it's really been a a learning curve of how important planning and execution of strategy are to getting to where you want to go. What drove the decision, the strategy, the strategic choice to convert land into what you now have? A couple of things. Uh, The S&L crisis, for one. The company's first realization, the shareholders, privately owned real estate or privately owned company. And at that time, 20 years ago, we had rock, sand and gravel businesses. In fact, much of our development, uh, much of that 6,000 acres was um, the product of it being a mineral resource at one time. The cash flow crunch that came from owning a lot of land, being in a difficult market, And at that time, because there wasn't a lot of building going on, it was hard on the construction materials business and the little real estate venture we had. And so the lack of liquidity, the lack of cash flow really caused our shareholders, all of us, to focus on the fact that we could convert that land on a very efficient basis into income property. And and we would be in that position where good times and bad, we'd have cash flow. And as we all know, it's those bad times when the buying opportunities occur. And if you have cash flow, you're differently positioned than some of your competitors. And we wanted to get from where we were to that position. It's a very simple principle, Mike, isn't it? That any enterprise can create a tremendous amount of wealth, but wealth without liquidity can create great crisis. And therefore, the multi-legged stool that we like to talk about and you and I refer to often in our conversations, where there is a value creation that um, is one leg of the stool So wealth and value are being created. Another one is the creation of income streams from operations of a company, providing services to itself and to others. And the third major leg of the stool is the production of uh, income from real estate operations, from operating real estate assets that are low leverage, that produce ongoing income all of which together create both wealth and income for distributions, for reinvestment, and for uh, long-term value, enterprise value creation. All those things are, as we've discussed, extremely true. And it also provides the human side of it. it. It provides some other things that are just really wonderful to enjoy. It creates a the opportunity to create a great place for people to work. And we've worked very hard to build a values-driven organization here. And by having good, solid fundamentals, it's a place that people can count on and know they can grow their career. And from a customer perspective, it provides that opportunity for the customer to enjoy the continuity of a firm that's invested in them as a customer, reinvests in the properties, keeps them in good condition, provides a team that wants to be there and provide good customer service. And, And so you've got this kind of circular model that feeds itself in success because you are leveraged and positioned correctly. And cash flow helps you do that. You kind of touched upon two really important constituents. We we always think about capital and and what do we have to do to 
create and protect wealth and income and stability of the enterprise. But all that is kind of like for naught if you don't have loyal customers and uh, loyal and satisfied uh, team members that can execute uh, your strategy. What do you do to create the culture uh, and to create that awareness to those two other constituent groups in the organization so that ultimately you serve all of your three major constituents, your capital slash owners, your employees and team members and vendors, and then, of course, the end users of the real estate, be it uh, tenants or residents or, uh, or, or, or visitors. We do a lot, and yet we keep things pretty simple and pretty straightforward. As I mentioned, we are a values-driven organization. We, we make our values the centerpiece of our conversations, what we do. And as we tell every employee in the company, if you make a decision in line with our values, we'll back you up all day long. And so that, that allows our workforce to be empowered. And you think about the people who are closest to our customer on a daily basis, it's the maintenance technician who's in our customer's unit. It's the property manager who's out on site because there's a flood in a particular tenant's commercial space. And the, the ability for them to make the decision right on the spot, resolve the issue and know that they've got the full force of the company behind them allows the customer to know that they have the right person there and, and their needs are being met right away. At a higher level, we ensure that we make our strategic plan transparent to everybody in the company. We review it and our goals four times a year with everybody in the company. We call it our quarterly business meeting. And we're of a size, a couple hundred employees, if that's still possible. And so we take advantage of that. We display our business plan results and we measure results all the way through. And then we reward based on what we call the balance of success. And to us, uh, we're successful as a company when we are achieving our goals in the financial area, the customer satisfaction area, and the employee experience area. When the way we measure those three things are achieving the metrics that we've set out, we consider ourselves successful. And if we have one of them out of balance, we don't yet consider ourselves successful and we have to work on that. And we make all of that transparent so that we're measuring it as we go. And if we're making adjustments, everybody knows what those adjustments are. That's uh, talking the talk and walking the walk, Mike. Congratulations. Well, very well said. What changed in the world, in, in your business, both internal and external environment, just over the last 10 years? And how do you see those changes influencing the business and the strategy for the business into the future? Well, of course, if we're talking in the last 10 years, we're talking the window of the Great Recession, which uh, for many of us was a great reminder that uh, just how how cyclical real estate can be and how important fundamentals are. We, as I, as I mentioned, we, we focus on cash flow. We probably focus more on cash flow now after 2008 and even we had prior. We make sure we match our development activities and the level of development activity with the ability to absorb the risk of that development activity not going well and still have good cash flow. So I'd say I put that in the category of focusing on fundamentals and the fact that there can be some downside. We also recognize that there were terrific buying opportunities during that period, and we were fortunate enough to have cash and, and take advantage of those. And so that balance of being in the market and always being in the market at some level, because it's almost impossible to time the market, but also making sure there's dry powder because no matter what, we're going to go through other cycles. And so it's really a matter of those areas of focus as we put them into our strategies, um, running our, our company in five-year strategic plans, as you highlighted, and making sure we have a cycle outlook in that and, and emphasize our, our business accordingly. A couple of clarifying points here. You said you focus on cash flow. And you gave a couple of examples of making sure you can sustain a potential hiccup in a project's, especially development project performance. Are there specific metrics you use to to manage that? Uh, are there basic, simple rules of thumb that somebody listening to this podcast might might learn from as to how to manage their cash flow or at least uh, their balance sheet uh, with with respect to that issue managing project hesitation because of market cycles? Are principal debt limiter, if you will, our, our risk ratio, our principal risk ratio is what we call a modified debt coverage ratio. And in that modified debt coverage ratio, we add to 
debt service, all our GNA, all our capital expenditures, you know, roofs, tenant improvements, et cetera, shareholder distributions, tax payments, everything that we would need to spend to have a going enterprise. And we have a ratio that says our NOI needs to be at least 20% above that. We actually operate at, right now at a higher ratio than that. We think things could get a little soft here before long, but that that's our limiter. And that discipline allows a nice buffer in the event that there is uh, you know, a, a big change that, that would impact your cash flow. And we can pay all our bills. The other things we do, you know, on the commercial side, we we try to really ladder the uh, expirations of our particular our larger commercial tenants and spread those out. We also ladder our debt. So that debt which we do have, we ladder its maturities, and we'll pay a little more here or there just to spread in kind of odd years to ensure that in any kind of either one year period or a couple three year period, if there's there's kind of more of a debt crunch. We don't have too much debt maturing during that period, and, and we have the ability to deal with that. Those are two very helpful uh, suggestions. Very interesting. Let's go back to the modified debt coverage ratio concept, which is unique and, and very tangible. Uh, how hard was it to get to that condition where you have that luxury? Did, were you able to get there from the very start, or did it take years of building up to the point where you have a stable enough asset base that allows you to, to manage this? We had to, we had to earn our way there, but no doubt there were there were periods that were riskier. And it's not that we won't ever go below the twenty percent buffer if we, if we have a good reason to and and we have a good feel for where we are uh, in a cycle and whatnot. But our our general parameters to stay above it. To, to answer your question, though, we had to earn our way to get there. Right from from decision to realization, how, how long more or less did it take? I just want to get a sense for how patient one should be when they say, you know, I'd like to get there. How long might it take me to get there? You know, um, because we had a lot of land that was acquired by Henry Fenton back in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, we had the opportunity to do 1031 exchanges with that land uh, where it it gained quite a bit in value and convert that land to income. So within one strategic plan period, we were able, one five-year period, once we were focused on it, we were able to get there. Uh, I don't know that that's a fair comparison to most. Um, it is a much more difficult thing to start from the beginning and get there. I, I would imagine it'd take a while. Good point. Thanks for the perspective. Looking to the future, do you said that you would violate that rule if you had to because if you believe that the opportunity is uh, is worth it. Uh, has it been a constraint? Have you gotten to a decision point where you said, you know, this transaction, this investment, this project, or this collection of level of activity will challenge our ability to live within that modified debt coverage ratio. Therefore, let's pass on those opportunities. And if so, did you live to regret it? Or are you happy you made those choices even in retrospect? The the plan when we were putting together a strategic plan, we forecast because we all know particularly in California the development cycle and how long it takes. We forecast what we believe to be our development activity in the next plan cycle, and and back run to where we think we're going to be from a modified debt coverage ratio. And it does it limits the number of projects because development projects, of course, are cash cash going out. They they're not providing NOI until they stabilize. And so that brings your modified debt coverage ratio down. And so we do manage to the pace that we're going uh, according to that. So far, we haven't regretted anything. I don't know that we've really missed anything. We certainly could grow faster as a company, could have grown faster through this cycle. We've got some uh, inventory that would allow us to still build. But I, I don't. I think our shareholders are very content with the pace we're going, the returns they're getting, and the uh, the safety with which, relative safety with which that's being done. And I don't know if that's a great answer to your question, but that that's our perspective on it. <laughs> Absolutely, it it is a great answer, and I appreciate that. What uh, let's move on to the dry powder idea. That's another topic that is great of great interest to many players, particularly given how deep into the cycle we are now and. Uh, the realization that uh, best acquisition opportunities, best transaction opportunities may well be 
for the buyer during the downturn, during the next phase of the cycle, during which capital uh, may be much more difficult to arrange, external capital may be much more difficult to arrange. So the concept of having dry powder is certainly on top of mind for many people. How do you set up the dry powder and how expensive is it to maintain the dry powder? Depends on how you do it, obviously. Cash just sitting there, especially if it's cash that you have harvested from assets that had a yield, could be very expensive, particularly if rates don't rise much, gap rates don't change much, and the cycle doesn't really go through much of a gyration. We primarily work off a line of credit where we, because we're so lowly leveraged, we, we have the ability to, to have a line of credit that we primarily use as our dry powder, which is pretty efficient. Certainly, if the um, banking system changed dramatically and that were not available, we would have to be out in front of that and, and harvest some of the equity out of our property sooner. So that's one. And the other is we, we just frankly have good cash flow year in and year out. And that cash flow is, is dry powder that's available. So that latter point clearly is advantageous uh, to simply redirect cash flow uh, or direct cash flow into into dry powder activity. To the first point of the lines of credit, have you had experience in the last downturn where you thought you had credit facilities organized and they got yanked or somehow were not you were not able to use them for that purpose? No. Okay. Again, we were <laughs> at one point offered the opportunity for additional capacity. And it, a lot of it stems from, again, good cash flow and low leverage. Right. So banks realize the strength of the balance sheet and the talent skills that you the talents that, that the organization has and actually approached you to say, look, if we if you can find things, we would like to help you uh, get them done. Yes. That, In the last, as you know, no two are alike. So right. uh, we, don't, we don't count on the next one looking like this one, but that's how we got through the last one. Very, very true. Thank you, Mike. That, that's a lot of insights. It'd be interesting perhaps for the audience to listen a bit to how do you operate as a CEO? So maybe we can start on that topic by uh, your sharing with us, how do you prioritize your time, the projects, the things that you decide to pursue as CEO and drive the company to pursue as an enterprise? Well, CEOs, as you know, as you well know, it's a great role. It's a dynamic role. And it's one where foresight is important. Um, strategy in the and its execution in the current time period is important. And preparing for what what you don't know or should be looking for is an important aspect. So you mentioned being on a number of boards. I remain active out and out with people, people in different businesses, because I want to hear what they're talking about. I want to hear what problems they're dealing with, and I want to hear what their solutions are, uh, because somehow they will be applicable or an opportunity for us. And the only way to do that is to be out and about. The strategy part of our company keeping our strategy current, alive in the organization, making sure that I'm communicating to our employees that you know we're on track, where we're going, what they're doing is why we're achieving our goals, or if we're a little off, making sure we redirect where we're going. And you know, of course, then there's just the day-to-day. It's a, it is amazing in this fine high-tech world how many emails and texts we all get in a day and try to manage them. So it's a, it's a range of things that are forward-looking, dealing with strategy today, of course, keeping our company on track uh, on a daily basis and keeping track of that, as well as just managing the day-to-day. And I allocate time, first and foremost, to what are those things that are going to drive revenue? What are those things that are going to move us forward? Because with, with that focus, everything else falls in line. I have a very good friend who is a savvy investor. He's managing a very large uh, state retirement plan portfolio. And uh, he says that the best kind of real estate is the one that has a tenant that's paying the rent. And <laughs> that's precisely what you just simple, said now. Simple it, concept, right? Yeah, exactly. It doesn't need to be too complicated, does it? Well, sometimes we make it overcomplicated. <laughs> overcomplicated. Exactly. So you also mentioned briefly uh, the discipline around capital and capital allocation. Can you talk a bit more about the prioritization of the allocation of capital and how maybe using a case study, perhaps the Little Italy project is a good example, but maybe something else that you can kind of talk a bit about how the discipline around 
prioritizing and managing the allocation of capital comes to life at Fenton. Yeah, sure. Because we're what I call a closed loop model, it's our capital. And so the more efficiently we use our capital, the more we can drive NOI. And at the end of the day, we're trying to drive NOI to achieve cash flow. And so what we, we spend our time on is, is where are those opportunities looking forward where we're likely to be able to put dollars out in, in things we know how to, how to lead, how to manage and, and run. Where should those dollars be allocated? So at times, it should be towards development. And of course, that takes a little more forward look. At times, it should be towards buying. And at times, it should be a little bit of both. Right now, for example, we are more focused on certain buying opportunities at a volume that's pretty low. So we're looking for certain niche things. And we've got only one project under construction, our Boulevard project in the North Park area of San Diego. That customer in the North Park area, we know is still very much in the market, and we feel good about bringing that project to market. The investment side, we're just a little more cautious on, and so we're being a little more particular. We, we think that shifts a little bit if interest rates keep shifting, and, and we want to be poised and ready to go on that. Very good. So you mentioned that you're a closed loop, that you use only house capital to fuel your growth. Is that... A limitation on the opportunities set for the company? Have you not brought in outside capital because you just simply don't have a place to use it responsibly? Or is that something that's going to potentially change uh, in the future if you think that there's further opportunity or more opportunity for H.C. Fenton than the house capital can uh, take advantage of? Today, we've had plenty to do to convert 6,000 acres of land into income property. And then the cash flow that was created from that, making sure that's invested wisely. Over time, and as we've built the team, we do think we'll have capacity to go past that. And uh, we will explore third-party capital on a very selective basis and on a basis of, of good culture match. We're not quite ready for that, but we will explore it at some point. I'm just curious, what does good culture match look like? Yeah, so our, our owners have a very long-term hold perspective. They believe in the employee experience and its importance and how that gets passed on to the customer that in turn feeds the ability to achieve long-term financial results. And we would be looking for capital that was interested in in that type of an approach. Very good. Probably like-minded, perhaps even similar constitution type players that uh, may not have the capability to invest in real estate, but the desire but are similarly family enterprises and other long-perspective, long-term investors. You also, numerous times during this conversation, already mentioned your awareness of the cycle, thinking about the cycle, being prepared for the cycle. You mentioned dry powder. You mentioned scaling down your level of activity, the active investments right now, very little development right now. So clearly, you are driven. your strategy is driven by cycle awareness and preparedness. What else can you tell us about how you would advise others to prepare for cycles? What do you do to fortify the organization, the company, the balance sheet, and modulate activity levels so that your cycle works to your advantage, not disadvantage? Well, as as we all know, lease, lease expiration timing, certainly major tenants, debt expiration, debt maturities, cost of capital at a given time. If the cycle change is going to end up being mostly interest rate driven at the consumer level, which you know, I've heard many people say it's likely the driver. Making sure that you're financing things now so that uh, so that you are ready for that. And again, that the uh, as you said, if the best tenant or the best real estate is one with a tenant in it paying, uh, making sure those are the tenants we have in our buildings and, and a real focus on that. Are there? Were there any false starts? And what I mean by that is looking back for the last, during the last five years, we all began to talk about the cycle ending probably in 2014 or 15, just given the length of the classic real estate cycle, which is maybe five or six years long on average. So did you try to do, or did you implement any policies or activities in 2015, 16, 17, even year to date, 18? that have proven to be not worth it and maybe even wasteful, possibly even costly? 
That's a great question. We we did not get uh, into that zone where we really thought a cycle shift was imminent in 16, 17, or 18, given the various sources, including working with you guys, were a little more in that 19, 20 timeframe. So I don't know that we really pulled back on anything. In fact, today, we just closed escrow on a site that will have future development potential for us, the old Sharp Healthcare site down in San Diego at uh, 4th and Hawthorne. So, you know, we we have still bought things, particularly if we liked the basis. I think the only thing that may have caught us a little bit off guard is how fast construction costs have gone up in this last year. You know, maybe we could have brought a couple of projects and brought them forward and under contract and locked in different pricing sooner. But again, we we did not uh, we didn't have a lot of defensive measures in place. Well, that's good. So so you did not find yourself jumping into defensive mode only to live to regret it and your your general management yep well that's right and you know so far you haven't made too many bad choices so that's that's really good that's uh kudos and to you also it seems like your major cycle preparedness activity is through the modified debt coverage ratio which basically modulate your activity so that even in a bad case of a cycle your income is sufficient to cover any obligations that you have, and that should help smooth out or at least reduce the impact of, a, of, a, of an economic downturn. Well done. Thank you. That is our, our shareholders' desire. That is very important to them. Good. So looking back on your career as a whole and certainly your tenure as CEO at uh, HG Fenton, what would you count among your mistakes? And maybe the lessons that uh, you learned from those mistakes? Oh, gosh. Well, the good news is I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, I had uh, two early mentors who asked me that when I first got into the real estate business, we were talking about projects and deals and whatnot. They asked me to get out a yellow piece of paper and draw a line down the middle, put on one side wins and the other side losses. And they said, here's the thing if you don't have anything on the losses side, you're not trying hard enough. And if uh, if you don't have more wins than losses, you're probably not going to be in this very long. And it was great advice. It stuck with me. So I remember early, we we had a deal where you could just did just about everything wrong. And you, you almost couldn't repeat this today. We bought a, we sold a piece of property down by the border, took a note, wanted to do a 1031 exchange. This was before qualified intermediaries. So we had this group that uh, offered to do be our exchange accommodator. We bought the note from the exchange accommodator so we could use the cash to buy a uh, auto center up in San Marcos. And we didn't use any lawyers through this whole thing. Bottom line is auto center, we had no business buying and it never performed. The exchange accommodator never finished the transaction. It was a Ponzi scheme and they took, they took our money. And we ended up foreclosing on the note. So... We ended up with the property back we sold in the first place. I have never forgotten that deal or all the lessons that occurred all at the same time and and the importance of an investment strategy, of the homework you do in both market due diligence and physical due diligence, the importance of good attorneys involved in your transactions to ensure that uh, you're getting the advice you need and the like. that's That's a good example. Thank you. Good lessons learned from that. Delighted to know that you haven't repeated those because that could be not enjoyable and maybe even a career ender, right? Yeah, you only get to do one of those in your career. <laughs> so again, you as as a, as, a, as a person, as a CEO, but also as an individual, what's important to you? What do you like uh, to do? What do you enjoy uh, in life? Uh, and how is that tie? how does that tie to your professional career? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, I love my family. I'm blessed to have a wife that has been with me since college and two now adult children. I have nephews and nieces, and, you know, brother and sister-in-laws. My mom's fortunately still alive. We lost my dad a couple of years ago, just surrounded by a great family. Love that. Um, I love creating, love being part of the creation process. You know, the privilege of what we get to do where we create places where people live, work, shop. In fact, I had the honor of being inducted into the California Building Industry Hall of Fame earlier this year. And 
in my speech, I said, I asked everybody to close their eyes. And I said, now think of just a great memory, something that's really important to you. I said, now picture where you are. And I went on to say, we build that. And it's true. We, we build the places where dreams come true and memories are made. That's what we do. And I don't know too many professions, too many things you could do in your lifetime that, uh, that are as impactful as that. And so um, I love that part of the process. What I've learned over the years that I equally value, and I didn't see this coming, is building people's career. Having built this company, our team has provided the opportunity to allow a lot of people's careers to flourish, to really find who and what they are and what they're capable of. And I, I get great satisfaction out of seeing that happen. It was just with a group of uh, employees today at lunch at one of our apartment communities and just listening to their perspective on their careers, what they're achieving, and how much it means to them and, and their, their optimistic outlook for things they want to yet achieve. Super motivating. So that combination, I get great satisfaction from. Yeah. Well, those are terrific insights and they really shed light on a on a person that is uh, rather selfless and very minded to the outside the, the the places and the people with whom you work and touch and taking joy from seeing those things come to fruition come to life and creating uh and the, the the people and the places environment that uh, allows for things to thrive so before we get too carried away with how great a person you are, what's the downside? What is the vulnerability of Mike Neal? And what do you do to compensate for it? Yeah. Well, I'm a highly impatient person. We use a predictive index and I'm almost off the charts and impatient. So I have to manage that every day. And I'm very competitive. I like for us to achieve what we set out to achieve. And uh, that has to be managed on a daily basis. I'll never forget early in my career, I got my first 360 review. And suffice it to say, my view of myself versus my team's view of me were not aligned. And it was a great look in the mirror. I've never forgotten it, and I've, I've kept it in front of me. I still keep it in my drawer. I've kept it in front of me as a reminder that uh, how who I am naturally um, can impact positively and negatively what's going on in our organization and those around me. And how important it is to me personally that it be positive and that I have to manage that. Managing that in part is probably making sure that the people around you can give it to you the way it is because you know how to take it the way it is. But not everyone is capable of doing that, both on the given and on the taking side. What advice do you have to others? Because I think many of the listeners to this kind of podcast are likely to be equally impatient and equally driven as, as you are. And they too probably struggle for how to manage that and how to end up with the outcomes they want to have and the relationships that they want to have in spite of not necessarily curbing their ambition and or their impatience, but rather in spite of their ambition and impatience. So what advice do you have for them besides surrounding yourself <laughs> with people who can take it? Yeah, you have to be willing to listen to things you don't want to necessarily hear. I have the fortune of a team, our executive team in particular around me, that is not afraid to speak up. And we've created a culture where we, we hold each other accountable and we're not afraid to, to give each other feedback. And when you're getting the feedback, uh, role modeling how you want others to receive it when you're providing the feedback. And that's not always easy. There may not always be the complete perspective of why you reacted the way you did. A number of things could be going through your mind. But keeping in mind, the greater whole of what you're trying to create, and that is the culture where that type of feedback will come to you. Otherwise, it is the emperor with no clothes. So, Mike, um, to foster that culture, is that something that you have intuitively come to honestly on your own, or did you employ the services of a coach or a mentor, or how would you advise someone else who isn't quite as fortunate to already have the team of those folks surrounding them and who may not know how to accept the feedback or even solicit it in the first place and then manage it the proper way. How would you do that? So I, I did have the fortune of, uh, we had an organizational consultant early in my career, a woman by the name of Eileen Hahn. She was super helpful in it. I did join Vistage for several years, in my opinion, during Vistage's prime, and I had a great Vistage chair, a guy named Lang Morris, who 
definitely wasn't afraid to make sure I heard it straight. So I, I did have help and mentoring along the way. I will say this, though. The help and mentoring is, is important and valuable. It first and foremost has to come with the choice that you want to do it and you're willing to suck it up to do it. Because without that choice, I've seen the opposite where great mentoring has been available and that choice hasn't been made and, and no change occurs. Yes, I totally recognize that. But I think that it is important for people who haven't tried this. And I agree that they need to want to make the change or accept the feedback if they want to have a different outcome. But uh, trying to do it on your own may be more challenging and not necessary to suffer that pain and, and, and uh, difficulty in accomplishing that goal of creating, fostering the culture and building the relationships that you want to have. There are people out there, there are resources out there. You mentioned a few, and those are great examples. I'm sure there are others, but thank you for sharing that insight with us. God, you're right, because you don't, you don't want, how do you want to put, how do I put this? You don't want the dress rehearsal to be always within your organization, right? You want the opportunity to practice so that you, you do show up as your best you. And the only way to do that is to have resources. And that, I think about sports. That's what you do in sports. I couldn't agree with you more. For me, I found that there was one more element that was helpful. I wonder if you had the same experience on the journey to become a better leader, to become a better person. I found that as having gotten into a position of leadership relatively early in my life, I had a very scant peer group to share experiences with, to learn from, and to do the dress rehearsals, as you call them, to sort of share the vulnerabilities. Here's a situation. Here's what I think I want to do about it and get some feedback before the real test comes along. For me, it was through ULI and YPO. For others, it's other kind of environments. But that was very helpful as a way to develop my abilities and skills in all communications and leadership type uh, issues. Sounds like you had similar experiences. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, so for me, it was the, the Vistage experience and NAOP's national forum, as well as a coach. I've had a coach a few times. In fact, you know, I'll be honest, I feel like I'm ready for more growth and uh, I'm going to go explore a different type of coach that's on my list to uh, complete before the end of this year. Well, we'll, uh, we'll circle back to you next year in our maybe a potential podcast update to see how that went or how, how that's developing. Mike, you gave us some great resources. Are there any uh, any ideas about uh, personal development and, uh, and, and leadership development? Any other thoughts, any other recommendations for someone who is looking to gain insights into real estate and or to becoming a better leader, period? You know, so there are so many resources out there, so many books written on leadership, so many ways to approach real estate. I think the most important advice that I try to give myself is how can I focus on a few things and do those well? And what are those few things? And you know, how do you pick them? How do you make sure you focus on them? How do you make sure they're making a difference? So, you know, that define what you're going to do and then measure it. And then, you know, how do you always keep an eye and an ear out so that you're not blindsided by something that you should be paying attention to? And, so a few things really well over and over again that matter, and then enough experimentation to know if something in that needs to be changed. And I try to follow that. We use Blanchard's situational leadership model here. We've simplified it, but we use it over and over and over again. We also use predictive index, which measures you know dominance, non-dominance, introvert, extrovert, patience, or work pace, and level of detail. And we, we try to make sure we line jobs up with that. And and what that does is, you know, the the uh, adage of putting the right people in the right seats on the bus. It, it's a good guide to make sure you're doing that. And we don't use five uh, tools for that. We just use those two tools. And it's that type of an approach that I believe helps a leader be successful. A few things really well over and over again that matter. You also focus on the four P's of marketing. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So for re the real estate side, I think real estate is the most fascinating marketing business there is because every piece of property is all four P's, right? It's a product. And for those that are leading any of our real estate assets, if they can define what that product is, then they know how to price it. They know how to promote it because they'll know who the customer is that they're trying to connect with. And every customer profile is different in connection. 
And of course, every piece of property is in a place. And what does that place mean? Some properties are for commuting convenience, some are for job convenience, some are price-oriented, et cetera. And, and it, as it relates to every development project, we start with, okay, who is the customer and how do we know what that customer is thinking? And how might that customer evolve between now and the time we finish? And we do focus groups. We do them oriented towards where the customer is most likely to be most candid with us. For our Boulevard project that I mentioned, there's a Tiger Tigers, a, a bar nearby there where we know our customer goes quite a bit. We hold all our focus groups at uh, Tiger Tiger, <laughs> right? Nothing like a beer to get, get a, uh, a straight answer. You would definitely get me so, to open up. With a, with a beer and a, and a little snack. There you go. <laughs> so it's that, it's that on the real estate side, it's that focus of those four Ps, starting with uh, who's the customer so we can define the product. Yeah, great. And, and a, a fun example of that is our Little Italy project. If you, anyone listening to this gets a chance to go by there, we built a European-style public piazza on what used to be Date Street between India and Colombia in downtown San Diego in the heart of the Little Italy community framed that with two apartment buildings with the ground floor retail and have created really a true European style experience. Put a level of public parking below that and two levels of uh, resident parking. And the the piazza is just this magical place that uh, people come and they're comfortable and they're fortunate enough to get a a liquor license to serve uh, beer and wine out on the piazza. So you you just see all this romance live music and our customer who's coming to us in the apartment project is coming to us to be a part of that lifestyle, to be a part of that experience. They want, they want that to be their community, which is way back when what we put out on the table from a focus group perspective that we wanted to achieve and, and to hear our customer now saying that that is their experience. It's uh, it's very gratifying. Yeah. That's a nice round trip from idea to fruition. And I would, Agree with you. Anyone who has a chance to visit the project should and take some time to sit around and soak in the environment. It really is a great execution of a placemaking that happened really quickly, but as a product of, I'm sure, very long planning and very tedious and specific you know, aspects of the execution of it. Mike, you said a moment ago, begin planning a project or thinking about the real estate with the end user in mind. When you think about some of the listeners to our podcast are young leaders, emerging leaders, people who are thinking about building a career with an eye towards a career, uh, a leadership path. What do you advise someone who would like to grow into leadership? How should they plan for a path that will lead them to accomplishing that goal? When I was first, uh, Given the nod to be the CEO of Fenton, Eileen Hahn, the consultant I mentioned, uh, gave me Covey's uh, Seven Habits book. I hadn't actually read it prior to then. And what stood out to me was the begin with the end in mind, you know, write your eulogy. And so I, I sat down and said, what kind of leader do I want to be? What do I want to be remembered as? What, what do I want people to say about my leadership style and, and my impact on them? And Everything we've done as a company and I've done personally has been around what that end looks like. Whatever you want to be as a leader, um, write it down. Write it down. Write the perspective that you want others to have of you as a leader. And then back into that, the training, development, and uh, evaluation systems you'll need to ensure you get there. Does it run the risk of being contrived if you sort of create an idealistic and maybe naive vision of what you want to be, and then kind of use that to kind of drive your life. Do you live an authentic life when you do that? Or or, or are there tools to make sure that end in mind is crafted, conceived in a way that is authentic, that is not just unrealistically aspirational? Well, I think you've just asked a, a loaded question. If not done right, it could absolutely come across as contrived. If it's not who you are, as a person, it will come across as inauthentic. And in today's day and age, especially, everybody will pretty much point it out to you in some way, shape, or form, whether it's the easy way or the hard way. So sure, I think you need to be able to be authentic in it. You will need to be able to hold yourself accountable in it. We've talked about tools and techniques of 
certainly surrounding yourself with peers, being vulnerable, sharing where you want to go, having people give you feedback. Uh, We've talked about 360 reviews to ensure that you're tracking the direction you want to go. We talked about creating cultures in an organization and and finding ways to measure whether or not you're creating the culture you had intended to. I think the inauthentic thing to do would be to say, I want to be X and not have any check-in system to see if you're if you're headed there or not. Exactly. Well, I appreciate your clarifying because I do believe that beginning with the end in mind is exactly the right approach to it and certainly served you very well. I can say uh, the same for myself, but I do think that uh, it's important to have that be done in the context of who the person is, not try to have an idealistic view or some romantic notion of what a great leader looks like and try to be Winston Churchill, if you believe that he was a great leader, but rather be authentic to yourself and then craft a vision for what the end looks like so that can become the true north that guides judgments, decisions, relationships, and uh, steps along the way to end up in that desired spot as a successful leader. I want to thank you for participating in the podcast. It's been an honor and a pleasure visiting with you today. I know we covered a lot of subjects and there's a tremendous amount of take-home value for anyone who takes the time to listen to the podcast. I appreciate your openness and your being a good sport and for sharing so much of yourself today. Mike, it's a pleasure to be your friend. It's an honor to be your friend. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time today. Well, thank you, Gotti. And as you've heard say, you are a treasure to, to many people in our industry, and I, too, honor being your friend. So thank you. Thank you, Mike. Take good care, and we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye, Gotti. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at rclco. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.